0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 21. Today, we're asking the question How foreseeable was the dream world accident? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray. And we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And today, we've got another slight deviation in our regular format, and um, we're hoping our listeners might get some sort of hybrid between Drew's old podcast, Disastercast, and our, our current podcast, The Safety of Work, all wrapped up into one episode. We're going to be talking about the accident that happened on the Thunder River Rapids ride at Dreamworld, uh, which is south of Brisbane in October 2016. So this, uh, this incident, it, it's very likely that some of our listeners, particularly maybe in Australia, may know some people who are involved in the accident or its aftermath in the last couple of years. And in addition to the families of the victims and the people involved, there are also a lot of eyewitnesses, uh, lots of employees of Dreamworld, its parent company, the ambulance service, the police service and the, uh, the Office of Industrial Relations, as well as people who've been supporting the coroner's inquest over the last, uh, short while. So we can't imagine how distressing this may have been. And we, Definitely don't want to add to that distress. So if you have been affected by the incident or something similar, please feel free to hit skip on your car console or your podcast player and go and listen to something more enjoyable. We, we don't expect you to keep listening. So, Drew, this question, how foreseeable was the Dreamworld incident?
1: So just before we start, I've got a couple of disclaimers that I need to throw in just because I've... It's hard to find anyone who's not connected somehow to the Dreamworld incident. And I've got a couple of peripheral personal connections I just need to declare I happen to know counsel representing one of the families and one of the expert witnesses and I co-supervised a PhD candidate. So I don't think either of those are big conflicts of interest, but I always think it's worth being open about those things. And David, I think you actually have a connection to this one as well.
0: Yeah, look, um, when I thought we should talk about this because it was in the media and we, we seemed to have a good response when we talked about the Brady report a month or so ago. So um I actually worked on this Thunder River Rapids ride as a ride operator when I was doing my undergraduate uh, Workplace Health and Safety degree. So between 1998 and 2000, I was a ride operator on weekends and uh, university holidays on this on this exact ride at this, at this theme park. Before we talk about the accident itself, one of the reasons we're talking about this and why
1: David wanted to talk about it, because it was very topical and interesting, and I was a little bit reluctant until I read through the coroner's report, and I thought there were a few things in there that really illustrate something that's important for all of us to talk about hindsight bias. So for this part of the podcast, I'll be drawing on a few different papers. And so if you want to read more about hindsight bias, we'll cite those papers in the show notes. Um, And I'd recommend that those of you who are a little bit interested do chase some of this stuff up because hindsight bias gets thrown around a lot when we're talking about accidents and interpreting them afterwards. And it's a commonly misunderstood phenomena. The biggest part is it's not an insult to say someone has hindsight bias. Your hindsight bias isn't just an accusation you throw to criticize someone who is looking at an event that's already happened. Hindsight bias is a universal psychological phenomena and we all experience it. There's no escaping it. Everyone has hindsight bias. Um, this, This was known about for quite a while before anyone gave it a name. Um, so in, if you look in psychological history, there are sort of two observations. The first one's to do with probabilities. People overestimate the probability of a thing after it's happened. So if you ask, say, 100 people, what's the chance of it raining tomorrow? They might say 20%, because they don't know the outcome. But if you, if it does actually rain, and you ask 100 people again, put yourself in the mind frame you are in yesterday... And given the information people had back then, what was the chance of it raining? They won't say 20%. They'll give a much higher number. And that's related to another phenomenon, which is that people overestimate the knowability of a thing after it's happened. Um, Often to the point where they claim that they always knew it, even though they never did anything to prove that that claim that they always knew it. To find good examples of this, you really need to find common pop culture references, so I'm hoping most of our listeners have heard either of the Jimmy Savile or Rolf Harris cases. If you haven't, both of these were very popular celebrities and both later in their lives were credibly accused of sexual assault. Jimmy Savile was already dead when the accusations became widely discussed and Rolf Harris was convicted after the accusations. And in both cases, lots of people said, I mean, lots of people that they'd always known that Wolf Harris and Jimmy Saville were just obviously creepy guys. But that's after the accusations were widely known and accepted. Most of those people had never said anything like that before the accusations became known. Um, And really importantly, some of these were the exact same people who people had come to them and they would dismissed earlier accusations and said, there's no way that's not credible. So, you know, afterwards, everyone knew. But beforehand... Not only did no one know, but they dismissed it. They said it's not possible. Um, So the guy who's usually credited with putting all this together as a properly researched thing is Baruch Fischoff. He is the one who said that this is a phenomenon that needs to be investigated and researched. And he set up lots of experiments both to demonstrate that it exists and to rule out alternate explanations so that we know what's going on. Like most researchers, he wasn't great at naming, so he had a few goes. Um, He started off calling it Creeping Determinism, which didn't really stick, and then he started calling it a bunch of Hindsight Effects, and then finally the name Hindsight Bias. So he introduced all three of those names. It's the Hindsight Bias one that seems to have stuck. If you want to know the history of how the experiments were done, um, and in particular all of the people who came afterwards just confirming, extending it, pinning it down, There's a paper from 1990 by Hawkins and Hasty that gives a good history of those experiments. And so anytime you think, well, actually, maybe this is what's happening, go and look at the Hawkins and Hasty paper, and someone has done an experiment to check that. According to Hawkins and Hasty, there are probably four different mental processes that we use when we try to work out how foreseeable something was. So you're after an accident, you're trying to work out, was this foreseeable? there's four things that you might be doing. Um, The first one is where you already had an opinion about it before the event. So what you're doing there is you're searching your memory to try to remember what you'd previously thought. And if you've only done that once, that can be very resistant to hindsight bias. If you've just like once had to give an opinion about something, and particularly if you've written that opinion down, then there's a good chance you can remember. And you can say, of course, this was foreseeable because I foresaw it. And look, here's where I wrote down my prediction. That's like nice and ironclad. But that doesn't work as well if you had a range of opinions over time. And that's where the phenomenon of creeping determinism comes in. So ask yourself, did you think that Donald Trump had a good chance of winning the 2016 election? Now, I admit for some people, they just don't think about that at all. But if you thought about it, then probably you thought about it multiple times And you had a different opinion each time as you got more information. And our memories are terrible at knowing which judgments we held at particular times. So probably there was a time you thought it was impossible, and it was just a joke idea. Then you thought there was a time that it was possible but highly unlikely. Then a time when it was possible but still an outside chance. Then it looked like it was probably going to happen. And then it definitely happened. And That's a normal process of learning. We update our brains with more information, but we can't unlearn stuff to work out what we knew at particular times, and our memories aren't designed to help da- pin down what different opinions we had at different points in time. So the second process is where a thing called anchoring, where we start with the post-event belief and we go backwards. So we know that the actual likelihood of the accident is 100% because it happened. And then we say, okay, what did people know beforehand? Let's start adding in uncertainty. And you come down from 100% as you add in uncertainty. But you never know all of the sources of uncertainty. So we never add enough. And we end up with an estimate higher than if we had to reconstruct the likelihood from scratch. I'll, I'll jump ahead to the fourth process, which is just where we want to look good. We want to present ourselves in a favorable light. So we want to say that we knew it all along or that we wouldn't have made those same mistakes. Um, But the really interesting one is the third process, which is when we do actually try to reconstruct, we try to use the facts and events at the time to work out what the likelihood is, like putting our minds in the past. And so we do that by assembling a new judgment of probability, both from our own long-term memories and from information that we can find in the world. But because we know the outcome, we tend to find more evidence to support rather than contradict the outcome we already know. And we tend to evaluate the strength, credibility, and relevance of that evidence based on knowledge of the outcome. So I'm conscious that I'm basically giving a lecture on hindsight bias here. And I'm looking at David sort of nodding and smiling in the video camera at the other end. So I'll throw over to you, David. Um, does this sort of match your own thinking about sort of understanding hindsight bias and how it
0: works? So Drew, I'd have to admit that I hadn't didn't have a very good working understanding of hindsight bias until you prepared this. I, I was familiar with it as a concept um, through just normal investigation of incidents and, and we talk a lot about it and, and we also talk a lot about counterfactuals and and that's, you know, something that I've closely associated with hindsight bias, whether or not it is closely associated with hindsight bias. But I think it's um it's very hard when something's happened for for anyone to say, oh gee, that was that was impossible to predict. You know, I don't think that's um that's comforting for organizations. I don't think it's comforting for family members. So it's a big challenge for us in, in safety is how we look forward with with the information that we've got. And then and then I suppose how do we assimilate information about the things that have happened at the same time?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I think one thing that makes it particularly hard is that the whole investigation process is trying to explain what happened to people. So we're deliberately trying to find all the evidence that points towards what could have caused the accident. And that's exactly what we should be doing. Is you're finding evidence that shows us what was leading towards this accident so that hopefully we can learn how to prevent it next time. But that whole process leans away from finding evidence that points away from what caused the accident, because it's not relevant to that main task. And it also leans away from interpreting evidence in ways that show it to be inconclusive or irrelevant. We don't like throwing away evidence and saying this, this doesn't say anything about the accident. And so that's, that's good for finding out what caused the accident. But it's bad when we go to that next step of trying to understand what people could or should have known about those causes in advance. We've already biased all the information we're collecting and how we're interpreting that information, even leaving aside the mental bias, which is the hindsight effect. So the important thing here, this isn't people being hypocritical. It's not people trying to make a good impression. It's not people face-saving. This happens to people making a genuine effort to be fair and to be really realistic about what people might or might not have known in the past, they still suffer from just as much hindsight bias. So a few snippets from the literature that we know really well. So we know that it's easy to manipulate things to make people have hindsight bias. We can make anyone exhibit this effect. It's not something that some people are immune from or some people are particularly bad at. Unfortunately, it's been heavily tested using real accidents and real judgments about negligence. So there's some psychological effects where you can say, oh, that's really interesting. But yeah, that's in the lab. It's going to disappear when it comes out into the real world. Um, And hindsight bias doesn't. If anything, it gets worse in the real world than it does in the lab. And one of the reasons for that is some of the things that make hindsight bias stronger are it's stronger when you're talking about negative events than when you're talking about positive events. And the more severe the outcome, the stronger the effect is. So, you know, everyone suffers from hindsight bias, but the particular conditions that make it absolutely worse are investigating a fatal accident. That triggers all of the things that cause hindsight bias. So two other things that are frustrating are hindsight bias can affect other cognitive processes, including memory. So it can literally make you remember your own historical judgments incorrectly to the point of getting people to forget who they voted for in elections based on how that politician has turned out. In government, and again, that's not face-saving. That's genuinely sort of rewriting people's memory of their own judgments. So basically, you just have to learn and accept that there's some types of judgment which are always going to be hopelessly contaminated. There are some some things that we know a lot better in hindsight. you know we know history because it's happened, and there's some things that we know worse, which are things like historical judgments. And if we're careful, we can work out you know what is a statement about what happened and what is a statement about what people should have known, and separate out those things. You can even, if you're really careful, separate what people did know based from what they should have known. You've got to be really careful from that one that you're not making assumptions about what they did know based on your hindsight judgment of what they should have known. There's only actually one thing we know that helps with hindsight bias. It's a particular mental trick, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But most attempts to reduce hindsight bias, including it carefully explaining to people what hindsight bias is, don't actually reduce hindsight bias. So there's one final thing I wanna throw in, which is again, very frustrating, but it is, I have to be forgiving about it because it is a demonstrated part of the psychological phenomenon. It's not people being stupid. A common feature of hindsight bias is that people deny that they're influenced by it. This happens in laboratory experiments. People, even when you show them that they've exhibited hindsight bias, they still insist that knowledge of the outcome didn't influence their judgment. Um, It seems to me just like part of the self-defense mechanism of our brains that we have to believe that we're thinking clearly and consistently. So you give people evidence that their brains aren't working. They are forced to reject that information. So there's a rule I really love. It's called Helen Lewis's Law, based on a UK journalist called Helen Lewis that says that the internet comments on any article about feminism justify the need for feminism. So I think I'd like to propose Ray's law that says that most comments about hindsight bias in accident reporting are illustrations of hindsight bias. David, I don't know if you noticed the recent LinkedIn thread I started when I was doing the research for this episode. I don't really want to pick on anyone here because as I said, it's not a personal judgment. It's actually the way hindsight bias works as an effect. You know, guaranteed when someone says it's not hindsight bias. Look, here is the proof. The proof is almost guaranteed to be a very clear illustration of hindsight bias.
0: Yeah, Drew, and that's why we sort of felt we'd we'd open this up with um with with a discussion about hindsight bias because it's it's something that's really important for us to understand as we approach investigating uh, things that have happened in our organisations. And I really like the way you sort of describe that framework, Drew. About you, you're describing what happened, and then you sometimes conflate that with describing what should have happened. And, you know, maybe describing what should have happened is just entirely unhelpful. Maybe all we need to do is describe what happened and then work together to figure out what we do going forward. And talking about what people should have done in the past, you know, when we think about counterfactuals, is just entirely an exercise in uh, in sort of wasted effort. Is, Is that a way maybe to think about it?
1: I'm inclined to agree with that. And certainly when we come to some of the proposed solutions that are based off what they, people think should have been done or would have prevented this, I think we need to be really clear about what is a good recommendation because we think it is a general principle going for, forward and what we think is a good recommendation because we're frustrated about what people did in the far past and wish we could have made them think differently.
0: Okay, so let's move on to, to Dreamworld and um, and and get stuck in. So. The ride we're talking about is a Thunder River Rapids ride and it's a very common theme park ride worldwide. Uh, the first one was also called Thunder River and it was made for Astro World. and the idea of this ride is to provide a safe simulation of riding a raft down a set of river rapids. So there's lots of variations on a very similar design around the world. When you looked at the Dreamworld ride, you didn't really know how old it was because it was actually part of their Gold Rush town. So the whole design and features of the ride were made to look like an 1800s type of uh type of area but it was actually built in 1986 so by 2016 it was it was genuinely an old-fashioned ride it was 30 years old and quite a lot of wear and tear But, but the setup of the ride is that there's a there's a main body that goes through a a narrow trough with a downhill gentle downhill gradient a few percent and you can see it if you're walking around dream world the the actual ride itself goes underneath walkways and through and around certain areas on this gentle downhill grade. And then it flows to a, to a pool at the bottom and the water gets pumped back up to the top and it just circles, circles through the ride. The passengers sit inside a circular fiberglass seating area, the, the, the raft. So they're, they're in a circle. They put their bags in a little basket in the middle and they, they sit across from each other. And that, that fiberglass seating area sits on top of a large inflated rubber ring. And the rubber ring sort of floats down through the water. It bumps into underwater obstacles. It hits little rapids based on the different speeds of the water. And people kind of you know, make their way through the, through the ride. When the rafts get to the very bottom, they need to get back up to the top where the passengers get unloaded and reloaded. And the rides have a couple of different designs for doing this. Um, Dreamworld had a wooden conveyor system, which was like a big travelator. So the, so the rafts come in at the bottom and this constant travelator just picks the rafts up and they, they move back up to the top of the ride. It's not that different to just a, a supermarket ride or, or any sort of conveyor system. So basically, if, if you're a passenger, it, it kind of works like this. You start in the loading area. And my job, Drew, when I was on the raft, I wasn't actually the ride operator because they didn't let the studi- uni students actually operate the rides. You had to be a little bit more experienced to actually press the buttons. But my job was to try to just to unload and load the passengers. And you sort of had to line it up. That happened in the same place. And you had to line it up because in the seating configurations where the seats were two, two, and two, there was little gaps for people to step up and out of between the, the two seats. And the number one job was to try to make sure that as the raft slowly spun in, that you either kicked it or pushed it in a way that actually made one of the exit points line up with the way that the people could get off. It was very hard to get people off by making them climb over seat backs to the to the docking area, so that was always number one priority to make sure that the the, the rafts lined up. Then you you let uh, the group of passengers off, and they walk down one way, and then you got the new the new people on. Then the ride operator would push a bottom and the push a button, sorry, and the raft would move into a holding area uh, where they would wait. Then for the separation between the rafts in front and then release the rafts at a, at a regular interval on the way through and, and just keep the ride moving in that way. And the ride operator themselves had had CCTV of every single part of, of the rapid ride so that there wasn't people physically watching the whole ride, but um, the operator could see every, every part of the ride through the CCTV system.
1: So th- thanks for that, David. That gives a pretty um, clear description, I think, of what it was like to be on the ride or operating the ride. Based on a couple of things of the report, which we might touch on a bit later, did you have a sense of like how demanding the job was that you were doing or that the operator was doing?
0: So the operator carried the responsibility to operate the ride. When I say operator, the the, the person pushing the buttons at the console. And it was very, for me, it was very monotonous work, but but one that was always under some kind of time pressure because you you had to... Load and unload the raft and then move that raft on before the next raft came in and so there was there was always a sense from it, so the task variety wasn't demanding, but the kind of the production line process of the ride was always quite demanding, particularly if you had a few people that needed assistance in and out of the raft and or things weren't lined up properly, then you could very you could end up in a situation where you had rafts starting to come down behind and and you didn't want to you know it was always it was always uh, very clear to us as operators that the ride had to keep circulating.
1: And did you, were you taught to think of yourselves in a like safety critical role where the point of doing things was, oh, you need to do it this way because it's safe or that way because it's safe. Or was it more about sort of keeping the customers happy and keeping the ride flowing?
0: So given that we're, um, <laughs> given that we're talking about hindsight bias and this was 20 years ago, it's going to be very hard for me to, to know what I, what I, what I thought at the time. But um when I was reflecting after this incident, I don't remember a lot of a lot of safety conversation at all. I definitely don't remember a lot of conversation about emergency stops. It, the brief was sort of the operator will operate the ride. That's the that's the operator's job, pushing buttons. My job was not was not something that I saw as a safety critical role. My job was just getting passengers on and off the raft. Um, it wasn't. I, I had def, definite tasks to do to do to you know. No, actually, I don't. I didn't have definite. I didn't have definite tasks and decisions that were were safety critical. In a sense of, you know, watch out for water levels. I, I actually couldn't control the ride. I couldn't press any buttons. So all, all I had to do was basically get people in and out of those rafts.
1: Oh, always find it interesting when there are these little details of jobs that make them sort of challenging and skillful that aren't mentioned anywhere in the procedures. It's so like one thing I noticed is nowhere in the report did it say, you know, this, this thing, would be, that trick of being able to spin the raft around. So that the little gaps between the seats lined up neatly to help people get off on and off quickly without having to clamber.
0: The main thing for me is you'd actually have to make a judgment. You would have to look at the, the, the rotation of the raft and, and make an estimate about where that rotation was going to end up by the time the raft would actually come to the unloading area. And then I'd take four or five steps down before that happened and give it a kick either to spin up the amount of rotation or to slow down the amount of rotation to have this nice little this nice little spin that when it arrived and it stopped that you would have one of the three exit points of the raft neatly lined up with the way that people could just step straight off and that was kind of that would happen every minute for 8 hours it would be walk up and make that make that assessment about how the raft was rotating
1: that that little bit of judgment and skill that makes a job Fun to execute and gives you that little sense of satisfaction each time you get it right. Absolutely right. Yeah. So before we tell you about what went wrong with the ride, we thought we'd try to, at least for people who didn't know what happened at Dreamworld, give you a little bit of this hindsight experience. Now, obviously, this isn't going to work for people who know what happened, but for those of you who know that something happened but don't know the detail, you know, may- maybe this can give you an assessment of how much this was foreseeable by looking at what had gone wrong before. So, River Rapid Rides, as David said, they've been all around the world and they've been there for 30 years. So, we've got a lot of apparent data on how safe or unsafe they are. And you know, there have been hardly any accidents. Um, that's a little bit difficult when it comes to knowing what are the real safety risks, because there have certainly been incidents, but where there are incidents, we don't have a lot of historical detail unless there were fatalities and a lawsuit or a big investigation. So I kind of suspect that there were many similar incidents that we don't know about just because they weren't considered serious at the time. The passengers were okay, they were given a free t-shirt and a free ticket to come back to the ride, and that was the end of things. Not saying anything about Dreamworld, I'm talking about hypothetical theme parks all around the world. They might investigate them internally, but there's no reason to make it public and to create bad publicity if nothing bad has happened. So to create these descriptions of the rides, I've had to sort of hunt down news reports about the ones that did make it into the press or where the ride manufacturers have issued official safety bulletins afterwards. So I can't actually promise the accuracy of this information. It may, in fact, have been distorted by how they're reported. Um, But this this is the best I can do to sort of reconstruct the history of the serious ride incidents. And I suspect that um, anyone who was operating a ride might have been in a similar boat. They may have had a bit of inside track of people sharing information, um, but a lot of what they're relying on is what other people choose to share, choose to put out in bulletins. So, the earliest one I can find is in 1991. Um, This is at Kennywood Park in Pittsburgh. A raft flipped over just after it left the starting point. Um, All I've got on that one is the news story of six teenagers, had a scary experience, made it into the local paper. That's it. I actually suspect reading between the lines that this sort of thing was fairly common in the first couple of years after the first Thunder River is they tried to make them all a bit too exciting. And by making them a bit too exciting, they were learning lessons about what makes rides stable. And so probably actually flip-overs, bumps, jams were fairly common in those first couple of years. Reading between the lines there, there weren't fatalities, so not a lot of detail, uh, but probably a number of wet passengers who were thrilled to be the first people to flip over on the ride. But 1999 is when things started getting serious, and... Within five years, we're going to have five incidents, three of them within the space of a couple of months. So the first one was a fatality that occurred at Six Flags over Texas. So inside those rubber rings, they're not just a single continuous tube. They've got a bunch of different bladders. And several of the bladders on one side of that tube deflated. So the raft is running low on one side and high on the other side and it got stuck against a pipe that was running along the edge of the trough. So the raft is stuck there. It's filling up most of the channel. The water is pouring down behind it, buffeting it, and building up. And so eventually the raft flipped over, spilling people into the water, and the fatality was someone who drowned after they were tipped into the water and stuck under the raft. Later that same year, at Riverside Park in New England... This one is now also at uh, Six Flags and was operated by the same people, but was run quite independently. The raft became unbalanced. Uh, in this case, it wasn't deflation. It was because there were several heavy people all sitting on one side of it. Uh, one of the people actually offered to swap places, but the attendant was really keen that you know no one took off their seatbelt and everyone stayed properly seated. And so the raft went down uh, the ride very lopsided. It hit a rapid section where they had a sort of ramp upwards going to a weir. So the idea is it sort of goes up and then gives a heavy jolt. But it got stuck on the going up bit. And then again, it got water backed up behind it that sort of pushed it over. And when it went over the weir, it went over and flipped rather than just a bump. The third incident was at Vision Land Park in Alabama. This park has changed name several times since, but I'll stick with the name at the time. In that one, there were two rafts that were released with only a very short amount of time between them. So, David, you said that that's something the Ride Opera was fairly careful about, was making sure there's enough time between each raft. And in this case, they were released just a few seconds apart. One caught up to the other. They bumped, 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 and then got to a section of the ride where that bumping was enough to tip one over. There's another one in 2000, shortly afterwards. Uh, This one I just have zero detail about, except that I know that it happened. Uh, The Renegade Rapids ride in Maryland Raft Flipped Over. Visionland Park had another one in 2001. I'm not sure how much we can count that one. It was a time when the employees were playing around on it and they were deliberately trying to see if they could tip one of the rafts and they succeeded. (laughs) So not sure how much you can call that one an accident. And then the final couple I could find were uh, the Efteling Park in the Netherlands has a version of this called the Piranha River Ride. And they've tried to be quite inventive in that one. I think even at one stage, they're trying to put a whirlpool into it. And there's one section where that ride goes between waterfalls on either side. And there were two rafts. Uh, one of them got stuck in this waterfall section and another one bumped into it. Um, the second one happened in that same in area of the ride with the two waterfalls where it got stuck. Uh, but I don't have details other than just that it got stuck and flipped over. So that's basically the history of what had gone wrong and gives an indication of where people might or might not have been able to see foresee the danger of these rides. Uh, Because I think I know what happened and be misleading. I'm not gonna try to like create a story out of these about what the pattern is. But I'd invite readers to sort of hear those stories and think, okay, so what is the pattern here? And see if you can work out for yourself what's the pattern of danger. Where do you worry, where do you not worry about the rides?
0: So with this type of design of ride, there's clearly been some incidents around, around the world. And so Dreamworld wasn't without its own incidents. And in the interest of time, I'm going to move quite quickly, but I do want to, I do want to sort of talk a little bit about the history of this ride and, and some of the incidents. And then we'll get stuck into, to what actually happened, um, um, in 2016. So the coroner and the investigators have and the expert witnesses have all, all of the access to the full Dreamworld internal reports for all of these incidents and and we don't have that we've only got what they wrote about in the final coroner's report and for those that are that are reading it sort of discussed through paragraphs two, 218 to 234. but we start in 2001 and um basically the lone operator had started up the ride so in the morning starting up all the pumps and putting all of the rafts into a full cycle which they normally do and what had happened was then the second operator arrives. Like I said, there's an operator on the buttons and a second operator doing loading and unloading. The first operator who's meant to be pushing the buttons gets distracted by while talking to some of the guests and five rafts bank up in the unloading area. They all got pushed together because there's nowhere for them to go. Like I said earlier, Drew, you had to keep the ride moving. There was actually nowhere for the rafts to go because there was no place for them to safely bank up. They couldn't bank up at the bottom of the conveyor and there was no room at the top of the conveyor between unloading for them to go. Um, so they got tipped all over the place in, in 2001 and one of them became completely upside down. In 2004, a passenger um, that was being unloaded was the last person hopping off and the next raft came up behind it. Uh, the passenger lost their balance and fell into the water. This happened quite a lot, Drew. you know that like a raft bumping, you didn't quite get everyone out, but what you'd be doing is you'd be watching the raft coming and you'd know that the passengers weren't going to get out before there was an impact and you just make sure people were you know remain seating until that other raft bumped in from behind and then you'd get them out so this person was obviously you know maybe maybe trying to get out before that raft bumped and didn't quite make it in time and fell into the water in 2005 there was a leak in one of the rafts it was riding really low in the water it had trouble getting onto the conveyor and so two other rafts came up closely behind it no problems the operators intervened there In 2008, there was a problem with one of the sensors at dispatch. So three rafts had banked up in the dispatch area to clear this backlog. They get a, they let this bunch of three empty rafts go through close together and then another four rafts, one with passengers. So basically there was only about 20 or 30 meters between the unloading area and the dispatch area. So you never really wanted more than one raft in that, in that spot. But like I said, there was nowhere for these, these rafts to safely bunch up anywhere on the ride. So there was, a, there was a number of other incidents, but I just wanted to leave the opinion that, that there, was, there was at least in between 2001 and 2014 or so, there's a whole, there, was, there was a number of operational incidents associated with these rides to do with kind of like spacing and separation of, of rafts on the ride.
1: Okay, so, so, so probably just for the interest of time, if we summarize here that in 30 years, there have been eight rafts that have flipped over with passengers in them that we know of around the world. Uh, Dreamworld's had at least five incidents over the time, uh, but the worst one of those was involving a passenger ending up in the water. There's only one of them that involved the dangerous scenario that we're worried about here, where a raft gets stuck in the rapid section of the ride at risk of flipping over. So if you don't know what actually happened at Dreamworld, you've got a small advantage when it comes to avoiding making assumptions here. But what I want everyone to realise is that the data we've just given you is already heavily cherry-picked. And if you can see the problem with that, that might help to extrapolate into areas where none of us can see how much our own minds are messing with us. So we told you about the River rapid rides. You know Why did we pick those ones? Why didn't we give you the full history of amusement park rides? And what is and isn't dangerous about an amusement park ride? Fairly obviously, because we know the accident happened on a Thunder River Rapids-type ride. So we've zoomed in on those. Uh, we've told you about incidents where the raft flipped over. Why did we pick those ones? Why not all the ones where people bumped their heads or fell off? Because the Dreamworld incident involved a raft flipping over. We know those incidents are relevant. Um, and there's, there's three exceptions to this. So, so there's a couple of incidents we mentioned that don't involve a raft flipping over. So David told you about incidents where raft bumped into each other near the conveyor. Now, why do we know about those? Why were those ones in the coroner's report? Why did we bother to tell you about them? And the reason is because we know that the accident involved rafts bumping into each other. And so when we go back and look, those are the things that we dredge out. Those are the things that we find. Those are the things that we pay attention to. And not only that, but we pay attention to the parts of those reports that matter, So one thing that I think is really interesting is there's this 2014 incident that does talk about the possibility of a raft tipping over. And it does talk about the conveyor belt and rafts bumping into each other. But it talks about two separate rafts. The one that might flip over is the one that's floating around down the bottom. The one that bumps is the one up the top. It's not linking the bumping to the flipping over. And so what The thread that connects all of these things together is our knowledge of the outcome that makes the story seem like it's headed towards an inevitable conclusion. So so let's put in the details that now take us right past the outcome. So as David described it, there's this conveyor system that picks up the rafts from the bottom and takes them up to the unloading area. So after that conveyor and during the whole time of unloading, there are underwater rails that prevent the rafts from tipping over. So, you know, when people are standing on one side as they hop off, it can't tip over from that weight all on one side because there's this underwater support. You can't see it when you're on the ride, but you sort of know that it's there because the raft isn't tipping too much. But there's a 40 centimetre gap between the top of the conveyor and where those rails start. And so that's that's about to become really significant. So on the day of the accident, just after 2pm, one of the two water pumps that lift the water up through the ride stopped. The ride needs both pumps working all of the time, and so with one stopped the water level started dropping. Uh, As a result of that, one of the rafts, uh, technically it's called raft number six, got stranded in the unloading area. The water fell away beneath it and it was just sitting there on the support beams. 53 seconds after that another raft comes up the conveyor belt and bumps into the back. Of raft number six. Now, as far as I can tell, this is something that has happened a lot of times with various levels of severity, depending on how many rafts came up and got stuck or how severe the bump was when the bump caused a passenger to fall over. So it's not a desirable thing to happen. They know it's not a desirable thing to happen. But something pretty freaky happened in this particular case. The back end of raft number six and the front end of raft number five didn't just bump into each other, they pushed each other upwards so that the back end of raft number 5 went down, and slipped into that small gap between the top of the conveyor and the start of the supporting rails. And so now the conveyor is pulling that part of the raft underneath, and the wooden slats on the conveyor are acting like teeth on a cog slamming into the raft and pulling it down further, until the whole raft is standing up vertically. So the victims were killed either because they were shaken out of their seats in this process into the conveyor mechanism, or because they were hit directly by the conveyor slats as the conveyor kept running. So I really recommend that people, even if they read the report, don't look at the pictures. But if you look at sort of what happened to the raft, it looks impossibly freakish for this to have happened. The raft doesn't even fit through the gap that it ended up in. And the police investigators spend a lot of time just trying to make this happen to prove the circumstance of the accident, prove the mechanism. And they couldn't make it happen. They tried doing it with loaded and unloaded rafts, with the water there, with the water not there. They eventually tried, like, just hiding, holding the raft into position with the conveyor, and they still couldn't to happen, like it did in the accident. So, that's a basic description of the facts. How foreseeable was that?
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's the question. The question for today. So we've got to what's our question? How foreseeable is that in the way you describe it being? Being a mechanical system that doesn't, that wasn't even able to have the failure mode replicated, uh, you know, after knowing how it, how it, um, how it kind of happened. So, but there was a number of ex- expert witnesses and the coroner as well, you know, listening, going through the, through the evidence. And you know, there's been a lot of commentary around in the media and, um, in professional circles about this. And, and a lot of people have, have made it very clear that, um, in their opinion, this was, like you said, Drew, predictable. Inevitable, able to be managed if certain things had have been done prior to the incident, um, including both safety processes to do with risk assessment and um, other safety practices or by, um, by engineering solutions or, or design changes to do with the event itself.
1: To be fair to these opinions, I should say that I, I haven't found anyone who's claiming that the precise mechanism or circumstances or severity of the accident were predictable. What they're they're saying is that there was enough evidence from the previous incidents and from the design of the ride that any reasonable person should have predicted it enough to have put in place the right fixes that would have prevented it, not that someone would have predicted you precisely what happened. Um, So I've cut these down a bit. I'm going to refer to some specific paragraphs in the report, and you can have a look at those paragraphs for yourself. I'll just sort of pull out some of the keywords to give you a flavor of the type of hindsight statements that get made. So paragraph 988 of the report, it's clear from the expert evidence that at the time of the accident, the design and construction of the system, its conveyor and unload area posed a significant risk to health and safety. Each of these obvious hazards posed a risk to the safety of patrons and would have been easily identifiable to a competent person. Paragraph 989, the experts reached their opinions independently and were all in basic agreement as to the combination of causes. They were highly qualified to do so based on the evidence presented and were not influenced by so-called hindsight bias in reaching their conclusions. There was ample evidence of the potential for disaster of this nature occurring. Uh, Paragraph 994. Previous incidents, particularly in 2001-2014, should have alerted Dreamworld to the hazards present on the ride. 996. While the exact scenario may not have been able to be replicated during testing, this is of limited relevance, doesn't render the identification of the risk unpredictable without the benefit of hindsight. The hazards and risks which caused the rafts to conglide at different points on the ride, and particular at the end of the conveyor, were present and known and should have been identified. 2014. While the ride had operated fatality-free for around 30 years, at the time of the incident it's clear that the design and construction of the conveyor unload area posed a significant unidentified risk. A properly documented history with appropriate risk assessments would have identified and eliminated the serious risks. Uh, 137, sorry, 1037. In response to this finding, some of the parties raised the issue of hindsight bias. I have previously rejected this argument. It ignores the Australian standard. It ignores the history of four previous incidents, extremely similar in nature, it ignores the well-known danger presented by the numerous and regular pump failures. This danger was well known to the operators, with prescribed responses set out in the operator's manual. And then finally, 1039, in terms of hindsight bias as to the hazards present in the ride, it's clear that while the maintenance operational staff as well as OIR inspectors who attended the sites over the years may not have identified such hazards, this was not because the hazards weren't obvious. So. Uh, David, interest in your opinion here, but I, I see this almost as actually like a contradiction. They're saying that the hazards were obvious, and their evidence that the hazards were obvious is they're claiming that the hazards were known about. But then they say that Dreamworld should have conducted a competent person because otherwise they didn't know about the accident their hazards.
0: Yeah, I think it's um I mean these are very, very clear and direct statements about what uh what, what Dreamworld should have known in relation to this, but i uh, and I, I mean, we'll get onto it, but I'm just not convinced that even with all of the information that they said Dreamworld should have had, I, I'm still not sure that anyone would have assessed it as a credible risk that that needed something to be to be done about. You know, like they, they talk about that 40 centimetre gap, but the rafts are the bladders and the fibreglass seating arrangement on those rafts are double the width of that minimum, so 80 centimetres to a metre. Um, so a simple engineering assessment would have been there's no way a RAS going to go through that forty centimetre gap. That's a tolerance so that the conveyor doesn't actually so that we keep keep separation between the fixed rails and the moving conveyor system. It would have been a designed tolerance. So I just I just can't I can't see how, how it would have been predictable, Drew, but maybe I've jumped in too far into it. But in reading how direct those statements by the expert witnesses and the coroner were, I sort of felt the need to, you know, say something a bit more direct in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, I think there is I think in this particular case, we can almost see the way that hindsight bias is causing the selectivity because there's two separate hazards here that I do agree were known about and that this isn't a case of knowability because people did know about them and were doing something about them. And the first one is this general idea that hazards tip over on these sorts of rides is a well-known hazard. But it's entirely in the context of the rafts going downhill through the whitewater experience. And so that definitely includes the idea that rafts bumping into each other is dangerous. It includes the idea that rafts getting stranded is dangerous. It includes the idea that if you've got obstacles on the course, you need to be careful that the rafts can't get stuck on those obstacles. It includes the idea you've got to keep the rafts well maintained. You've got to keep them balanced to avoid them being unbalanced and having unexpected interactions with the obstacles. So that's well known about, and Dreamworld's doing a lot to manage that. That's why the operator's sitting there with a TV camera that can see every part of the course, why they've got instructions that, you know, if a raft gets stuck, hit the emergency stop button. Um, So that, that hazard is not just knowable, but it is known and being actively managed. The second hazard that is known about and is being actively managed is the idea that rafts bump into each other in the unloading and loading area. They know that that's dangerous because someone has fallen over when that's happened. And it's not just Note about Dreamworld obviously took that very seriously. Um, they implemented engineering controls. They put in an extra gate between the rafts coming in and the unloading area to protect the raft that's getting unloaded. They did a hazard assessment to work out what's the right number of rides rafts going around the ride. And yeah, this is a pretty big deal. They originally had 12 rafts going around and they reduced that number and put limits on the number of rafts depending on how many operators were working that day uh, just for this purpose of making sure that the rafts didn't queue up. So that was an identified and managed hazard. The bit that's only obvious in hindsight is putting those two hazards together and saying these are might be talking about the same thing. You, All of the evidence says on the the biggest hazard on the white water side is a raft tipping over and the biggest hazard on the other side of it is rafts bumping but there's nothing putting it together and saying there's a risk of a raft tipping over from bumping in the loading and unloading area you, the only possible connection there is to cherry pick that 2014 incident which talks about both but it's talking about different rafts in different times or to like pay lots of attention to the 15 years earlier accident in 2001 where the operator let five rafts pile up in the unloading area before the ride was even open. And you have five rafts pile up, then yes, one of them tips over. But that's not the sort of scenario that anyone ever imagined happening with guests and isn't the scenario that caused the accident. So so let's sort of jump back then to hindsight bias. People, after an event, they know what the outcome is. They think it's more predictable than it actually was. And they're unaware that that's happening. And so that's why you get all these statements in the report that know about hindsight bias, but still show hindsight bias. They're saying, you know, people have raised hindsight bias. It's not hindsight bias. We can legitimately say what people should have known. (laughs) It's not hindsight bias because this really was predictable. That's what hindsight bias is, is giving you that false sense of strong confidence that you can say that it was predictable. And so basically the rule is if someone says they're not being influenced by hindsight bias, that should be the clue that they're talking about the type of decisions which get influenced by hindsight bias. And so you need to look not at their claim or look yourself at how foreseeable it was, but look at, is this the type of judgment which hindsight bias applies to? And if it's a judgment about how predictable something was or a judgment about what someone should have noticed or should have seen, and even if it's a judgment about the relevance of something, that this evidence is relevant, that's a hindsight judgment. Um, and because it's a hindsight judgment, automatically it's affected by hindsight bias.
0: So, Drew, these things that um people supposedly should have known, these predictable hazards. So, so the spacing of the slats on the conveyor, the gap between the conveyor and the support rails, all of the effects of pump failures on water levels and what that would mean for the ride, and then this lack of an emergency stop on the uh, for the conveyor on the control panel. So. Just quickly, how how foreseeable are these things in terms of like these situations that could have led to this type of event?
1: So uh, there's a part of the preparation where I've sort of talked through each of these things in turn, looking at how they would have known. Uh, For the sake of time, I think maybe let's just jump straight to the one about the water level. So the coroner's report takes for granted that maintaining the water level was critical for safety. And um, so they're basically saying, you know, the big thing here was everyone knew that if the water level started going down, that's really dangerous. It should be automatically detected and have an emergency stop, or at the very least, it should be like seen as a really dangerous thing. But I think that that is cherry picking or mixing together two hazards here. So let's look particularly after the 1999 incidents, water level got flagged as a safety issue. And that's actually the main evidence in the report that Dreamworld knew that it was, water, w- was was an issue because it came from these instructions from, the ride manu- from a ride manufacturer, uh, Odie Hopkins, and it went from those instructions into the Dreamworld guidance for operators. Um, we've actually got a copy of this bulletin. It's got nine separate items. All of these items are to do with this idea of a raft getting stranded while it's going down the rapids. And that's why it's talking about water level, because if the water level is too high or too low... That increases the chance for a raft getting stranded, either grounded on the bottom or hitting an obstacle on the side and getting stuck. And so the recommendation there is it says water level is important because of these things, and so operators should check water levels several times during the day. When the report says Dreamworld should have known that water levels were important, that's the context in which Dreamworld should have known. They should have known that it's important for operators to check that the water levels aren't chronically too high or too low. There was absolutely no warning that the moment one of the water pumps trips, you're in a dangerous situation, you've got to stop immediately. The danger is if a raft gets stuck, you've got to stop. And water levels matter because water levels could cause the raft to get stuck. So you've got to stop. So I think that's sort of of thinking where you think, okay, let's make the argument the other way. Let's make the argument that Dreamworld shouldn't have done something about it. That trick is what helps you avoid hindsight bias. So actually advocate for them, should have done nothing, is the only way to really try to um, get around that. Um, And I think there is a strong argument that you can make. Dreamworld should have done nothing. They should have recognized that water level was a hazard of that type. They should have recognized that where water level is really critical, you've got to put in sensors. And in fact, they did that on other rides. so we don't have time to go into it. Dreamworld's got another ride called the log ride where they saw water level as like part of the braking system. It is really important that the water level doesn't go down on the log ride. And in response, they put in sensors. Same time, on the River Rapids ride, they saw rafts getting stuck at the bottom of the conveyor as an issue, and they put in sensors there. So that seems like a pretty strong case that Dreamworld was capable of recognising water level as a hazard. They were capable of responding to hazards. They just had no way of recognising that water level was a really time-sensitive hazard for the thunder river rapids rides
0: i suppose we've we're struggling to agree or or we're just pointing out the comments that are made in the coroner's report that all point towards this being a very foreseeable and obvious um hazard that that dreamworld were should have done something about we we've sort of said well actually no this is there's a big context around this and um and yeah you know, i'm personally of the view that i'm not sure that dreamworld could have foreseen this. And even if they did identify this particular accident scenario, I'm just not sure that it would have been seen to be more important than all of the other things in the park that they were spending their their resources on. So do you want to talk a little bit about some of the, 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 the suggestions in regarding to doing, in quotes, proper risk assessments?
1: Okay. So I think that's important because the reason why hindsight judgments matter is because they can lead us down the path of very unhelpful recommendations, because what we're trying to do is use this hindsight judgment to say people should have known. And because we can't understand that they didn't know, we think we can fix this. And the typical way we try to fix this is by making people do risk assessments. And so to cut a long story short, there are two types of recommendations in the report. And one set of recommendations I vehemently agree with, because they don't come from this hindsight bias judgment. And the other set of recommendations I think are going to be really expensive and really useless and distract from the good recommendations. So what's really good recommendations are general principles of safety that we would like to see going forward. I don't know about you, David, but I always assumed that rides were under some sort of engineering control. And that really shocked me. You know, I always assumed that you've got to ride, it'd be on a model like a roller coaster where you carefully model the physics of everything and you make it physically impossible for the most dangerous things to happen. And then the things that you can't make physically impossible, you put in place interlocks to stop the human operators doing anything dangerous. And then if something does go dangerous, you've got automatic detection that stops any dangerous thing and shuts things down safely. And the operators are basically there to push start, stop, and to stop little kids somehow managing to circumvent all of that really clever safety system. And that's pretty standard for public transport. And I just assumed that amusement park rides were like trains, but pretending to be scarier.
0: In, I think it was 2017 or so, or the year after this incident, um, I was actually at a conference with, with a colleague who works with me, Avitsininik, and we were at, um, I think it was Hazards um, at the time, and there was a regulator. Panel discussing this, and he'd actually put his hand up and said, um, "I actually really think we need to move towards some kind of safety regime for safety case regime for amusement park rides." And um, it was kind of laughed off as uh, as being a complete waste of time to put in kind of like all these engineering design principles for merry-go-rounds and ferris wheels and things like that. But it's interesting now, now a couple of years later, that the reports come out. I think it's going to send that industry down that very path.
1: So I'm not necessarily certain that a safety case regime is necessary to get what I'm asking for here, but I'm not going to say no to it either. I think it is a reasonably logical and sensible extrapolation. But certainly this idea that every ride should have an engineer who's designed it, those design principles are carried through the life cycle of the system, that there's a responsible person who holds the license and approves changes in accordance with that original design intent. I think that's actually quite cost effective. And really sensible. But there's another side to it that comes from the hindsight bias. And this is the idea that says, well, we didn't predict it. We should have predicted it. So if we make people do risk assessments, then they're going to predict it. And that sort of ignores the circular reasoning that their reason why they think risk assessments weren't done in the first place is because Dreamwell never found this out. And so they're ignoring all of the evidence that suggests that, in fact, it was probably it seems to have been really badly documented, but there clearly was a lot of risk assessment going on through the life of this thing. And creating more risk assessments and more documents aren't going to increase the chance of us finding out the unfindoutable. So you know, yes, have a system that puts in place good design principles and ensures them, but don't put in place a system that can miraculously discover mistakes that it's not capable of.
0: Yeah, it's a huge amount of faith in those processes. I know Drew in um your disaster cast episode about Longford and and you talk about, you know, after the event, the people who suggested that things like Hazop processes would have identified the specific operational scenario and 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 failures that were evident at at, at Longford. And you know, whether it's Hazop or 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 normal risk assessment. It's it's a bit of a cop-out recommendation just to tell people to do risk assessments, like you said, for things that they should have known in the hope that if they do do the risk assessments this time, then they will know them and they will do something about it. And that's just, yeah, I think that's just a cop-out for a particular specific incident.
1: Yeah, and and I I don't think it's at all evidence-based. So the coroner would like Office of Industrial Relations inspectors to regularly audit amusement parks. And there is no evidence that OAR is capable of building up a team of competency for this purpose that's going to be any better than the existing commercial people who were already regularly recognised as competent and were regularly auditing and inspecting the amusement park. There's just this hope that we tell people to do it better, we make it more official, the task is somehow going to be done better. They'd like annual risk assessments done, despite the fact that there's no evidence that risk assessment would have detected those problems. They'd like the, this is interesting, they'd like them to include all possible control system functions and variations, as well as a detailed examination of the ride during all modes of operation and possible emergency conditions. So if you think about that and how much it takes to do, say, a risk assessment that, uh, we're talking here about like functional failure analysis, fault trees, failure modes effects analysis done every year. You're talking multiple months of engineering work to do these assessments. But more than that, these rides are supposed to be foolproof and fail-safe, and they want us to deliberately build in a way of, of introducing emergency conditions just so that we can do annual tests. If you think about like engineering good principles, that's actually quite dangerous to deliberately simulate emergencies just so you can check if the ride can handle emergencies. It's like doing things like disabling the brakes on a roller coaster to check that it still comes to a stop. You've have to build in a function for deliberately disabling the brakes on the roller coaster.
0: And I don't know, Drew, if you're having too much fun or just um, had too much time on your hands when you were preparing this episode. But I did, we won't go through it. But you did do do some effort into trying to calculate the costs of the safety department that would be required to actually administer this this scale of a system in terms of all of these assessments and the documentations and the competency management system and the overarching safety management system. And responding to all the regulator things. And it, it is it'd be millions of dollars to put a safety department together that had all of the roles and all of the capabilities um at the scale that was required for the park to do this. And the whole exercise would be about paper.
1: And yeah, I don't want anyone to think that I'm forgiving Dreamworld for what happened here. I am never going on one of these rides again. But yeah, we are talking literally about millions of dollars worth of safety management. Because what we really wanted was someone to have realized that they needed a $50,000 PLC control system in place. Um, we wanted the PLC control system. We're not sure that the extra money on safety management would have alerted people to the need for it. And that, that's, that's the fundamental problem with hindsight bias. So we would love someone at Dreamworld to have been lying awake because they you know, were worried that something was going to go wrong at the top of the conveyor. We'd have loved them to be able to go into a management meeting, say this hazard above all other hazards was the one that needed prioritizing. We would love everyone else to have agreed with them and to dismiss all the evidence that said that there were other more important things to worry about. And we'd most importantly, we'd love to believe that if that was us, we would have got those things right. We, we, we want to believe that there's some magical process that will make those things okay, that we can hop on the ride, we can hop in the car, we can hop on the train, and we know that everything's going to be okay. Because life is just really scary otherwise.
0: Yeah, and I think these I think that's that's right, Drew. I think what these amusement park rides are very dynamic environments and like you said, using forces, physics and, and nature and, and moving water with other mechanical components. So they're just des- they're very nature, they're designed to be very dynamic experiences. But the big thing for me, to take out is, you know, the fail safe of the system during normal operations. So this like you said you know a, a PLC with a with a remote stop for the conveyor probably could you know might have been able to stop the accident accident sequence as it was playing out if the operator had um had been able to take control and so maybe that's just the one the one the one big takeaway from the recommendation is here is when whether it's a roller coaster whether it's a merry-go-round is like going to be how does it all come to a stop safely when it needs to and that's something that I just think on the Thunder River rapids ride bringing that whole from my experience on it, there wasn't a way to bring that whole ride down to a safe state quickly and smoothly.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a fair observation. There was considerable effort putting to making sure that it was safe as it was operating, but very little consideration about how to bring it to a safe stop and recover from there. And um, so I think we've sort of moved on to practical takeaways already. So the other takeaway that I would like to throw in is about what we can learn from this from our own investigations. And this is something that one of my field researchers sort of had some really sage advice for me. He said that when you're studying work, it's actually okay to have opinions about how things are working and how they should work. You, you, we can't really remove that sort of part of our exerting our own normative judgment. But the trick is just to hold those opinions lightly, to form an opinion, but to go looking for stuff in the real world that contradicts that rather than stuff that helps build our case towards the idea we're going for. I mean, I think that's really important. It's okay to hold an opinion about what happened. It's even okay to hold an opinion about what should have happened. Recognize that those are the least useful opinions and be ready to give them up in favor of looking for what's actually going to be a good way of managing things further. You know, I can really understand when you ask for this evidence from Dreamworld and they can't produce proper risk assessments, they can't even produce proper records of the decisions that they've made or how they responded when they learned about previous incidents, I can understand you sort of form this opinion that they haven't done risk assessment properly, and that's what we need to fix. But the evidence doesn't support holding that opinion strongly. You, if you actually go looking for it, go looking for evidence that they learnt from incidents, there's evidence of that. You evidence that they looked for what can go wrong. There's evidence of that. You look for evidence that they prioritized what they thought was most important, most dangerous. You can find that evidence if you look for it, even in the stuff that the coroners put forward. But if what you're doing is just demanding that there's a nice, neat paperwork documenting all of those things, then what you're saying is the paperwork's more important than getting the decisions right. Or you're claiming that the paperwork would have made the decisions go right. And that's just not true. So sort of bottom line, be true to what you believe only to the extent that you've got strong evidence for those beliefs, not to the extent that you can build a nice case.
0: Yeah, I had a, um, I, I had a conversation with a colleague, Drew, a practical one, which is a an organisation in Queensland as well, but a very large organisation that, and you know, Queensland's a hot environment, and they'd had a heat illness incident. And the, the person who investigated the incident had declared to me that we have no we have no risk controls for managing heat illness. And I said, well, hang on a minute. You might have no formal documented policy about heat illness, but for the last hundred years, your workers have been working in Queensland every single day in and out of the heat. I guarantee you there's a whole lot of active risk controls in place within your organization for heat illness. You just are disappointed because you went looking for a document and couldn't find a document.
1: Yeah, that's a great parallel. We we like to ask questions of our listeners. I'm just going to make a firm prediction that we're, this is going to start another argument on LinkedIn where people are pointing out to me all of the evidence in the report that they weren't suffering from hindsight bias, including the bits where we know they weren't suffering because they said they weren't suffering. I, I think that's sort of inevitable. What I don't want is people to get the impression that I am defending Dreamworld or that I think that they're the good guys here. I actually agree vehemently with the recommendations in the report. Uh, particularly to the extent that they basically say that thrill rides should be treated like any other safety critical engineering design project now we can agree or disagree about what we think are exactly the right methods what role risk assessment should play in that process what role safety cases should play in that process but there's like no good excuse for separating them out and saying that okay a train has to have this level of safety but a roller coaster is not a train because it's meant to look dangerous
0: yeah i think that's a good that's a good uh, takeaway drew and i look forward to to the discussion about hindsight bias but it is it is really important for us because we spend so much time in safety looking at events in the past and talking about what should have happened. It's, it's it's one of the more important things for us to understand. And as as safety practitioners, how we can navigate around that space. So I like your advice from before about the opinions of the investigator or maybe the initial opinion, opinions of the safety practitioner are the least most useful opinions. I think you said to me once, Drew, as well. If you get to the end of an incident investigation and can't list out, you know, a really long list of all really interesting things that you learnt then you really haven't been investigating um, with an open mind. So, Drew, that's it for this week. We hope our listeners found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Another departure from our standard format and, you know, maybe a personal record for us um, when it comes to length. So send send any comments or questions or ideas directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com.